Welcome to In The Trenches, where entrepreneurs, artists, writers, designers, inventors, warriors, and leaders share their stories of doing the hard, creative work that impacts all of our lives. Let the journey inspire you to do something worthwhile, build something bold, and create your life's work. And now, your host, Tom Morgus. Welcome back, everyone, to another broadcast of In the Trenches. I'm excited to have Melissa Dinwiddie on the call with us today, who is the creator of MelissaDinwiddie.com and the author of The Creative Sandbox Way. Melissa, thank you for being on In the Trenches with us. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Of course. So a couple things I want to get into today, definitely a little bit about the book, which on the cover, it says interactive playbook, which I think is pretty appropriate. Maybe we'll talk about that. I know it's kind of one of those things I think you need to have in your hands to fully appreciate, but take me through the process of, you know, why does this book exist? Why did you create this? And then maybe we'll get into a little bit of what makes it so unique. Oh, thank you for asking that question. I actually wrote the book really as kind of a love letter to my younger self. As you said, it's an interactive playbook. It's designed to get people creating right in the book like making messes with pens and pencils in the book, scribbling, writing, doodling on the pages of the book itself. And there's a little message right up front, a little story of when I drew in a book, a library book, a book that you're really not supposed to draw in when I was a little kid and I got in big trouble for that. And I invite the reader to draw in the book, to write in the book, to really mess up this book because it's really all about making messes and being an imperfectionist that you get into the guide, the 10 guideposts of the book. The, the first one is there is no wrong because we have to let ourselves make messes and get out of the mind space of, oh my God, I'm going to do this wrong if we're going to be creative. And if we're going to reconnect with our creative selves we have to let go of this idea that there's a wrong way to do things and a right way to do things. So the book is really, as I said, a love letter to my younger self who was so paralyzed by perfectionism and the comparison trap that for a good 15 years of my life between the ages of 13 and 28, I truly believed that I was a non-creative person. Not just that I wasn't an artist, but that I was not creative at all, which of course is a total lie. It's completely stupid, <laughs> but that's what I believed. And I lived a really pretty gray existence for those 15 years. I was pretty unhappy and I want to help other people not live that way. <laughs> so that's why I wrote the book. That's, that is the place that the book came out of. And the 10 guideposts that really form the backbone of the book started out as really just a handful. I think there were like maybe four little kind of rules that I developed for myself back in around 2010 when I was finally trying to, in earnest, bust out of the perfectionism that really had me trapped. And I realized that if I was going to let go of perfectionism, 
The only way that I could really do that is by letting myself play. And I'd forgotten how to play through the process of, you know, becoming an adult and, you know, following all the rules of doing things well, right? And so I developed this little set of kind of rules for myself. And over the years, these little set of rules that I developed evolved into the 10 guideposts of the book. That's where the book came from. And so a couple of these I want to talk about a little bit. Like one of them is it's about, I don't see, I'm pulling it up right now. It, if I remember correctly, though, you, you were saying that one of the guideposts is quantity over quality, which I think yeah. is maybe a little counterintuitive. So dig into that one for me. Totally counterintuitive. It's number three, think quantity, not quality. Really counterintuitive because of course we want to make things that please us, right? We want to make things that we think, wow, I really like this. But if you think about it from the perspective of say a photographer, if you've ever had, you know, wedding photos taken or headshots taken, you know, your photographer has probably taken a whole lot of photos, a whole lot more photos than, you know, the three or the 10 or the 100 that you've ended up with that are really, really good, right? And that's just expected. You know that your photographer is going to take way more pictures of you than the few that are really, really awesome. That's just normal. If you do your own photography, if you've ever gone out with, you know, so easy nowadays with our phones or our smartphones, right? You know that not every single picture that you take is going to be amazing. That's fine. We expect that. We take a whole bunch of pictures and some of them are going to be great and the vast majority of them are not going to be great. How are we going to get to those really, really amazing, awesome pictures? We're going to take a whole bunch of them. It's really easy to to wrap our heads around that concept of think quantity, not quality, if you think in terms of photography. And if you just apply that same concept to other creative things that we do, and in fact, other just things in our lives that we do, creative things in our lives, I think it's easier for us to sort of wrap our heads around it. And for me, I had to use that for the art form that I was trying to get back to. At the time, it was drawing and painting. I had this idea in my head, this story in my head that every single thing I did, every time I sat down to my art table and created something, picked up a pen to do some calligraphy or a drawing, it had to be amazing. Well, there's nothing more paralyzing than that. But instead, if I thought to myself, oh no, think quantity, not quality. If I take care of the quantity, the quality is going to take care of itself. How do you feel that that jives with in a business sense? Because I get the picture analogy and definitely art. But if we talk Mm -hmm. about maybe even writing and not necessarily even go to the business side of things, does that mean like, hey, write a lot of drafts before you pick the one you're going to publish? Yeah. So here's where I think about it in terms of like writing a blog post. If I sit down and I think this blog post has to be amazing. Every sentence I write has to be amazing. That is paralyzing. And in fact, that way back in 1994, I said to myself, you know what? I'm going to be a writer. That's what I'm going to do with my life. I'm going to be an amazing writer and I'm going to write amazing articles for magazines and short stories. And I'm going to be published. I'm going to be an amazing writer. Guess what happened? I was paralyzed. I couldn't write a darn thing because I would write like 10 words and my gremlins would say, 
that's utter crap. You can't write for, you know, I would delete everything I wrote. So I quit. I didn't write again until 2010 when I started my blog. It was a total disaster. Now I think to myself, not everything that I write, not every word, every sentence is going to be brilliant. Just let yourself write. And maybe the first three paragraphs are going to be complete crap. That's okay. Think quantity, not quality. Just let it flow. And then maybe the fourth paragraph or the 10th paragraph, things are going to start to flow. That's maybe going to end up to be the start of the blog post. Maybe those first three or four paragraphs, I needed to write those in order to get to the good stuff. As I like to say, we need the crap. Nobody wants to create crap. None of us wants to create crap. We all want to create amazing, wonderful, amazing wonderfulness. But we need the crap because it's the crap that fertilizes the good stuff. And if you also think long-term, we all want to be brilliant writers or you know, pick your creative output, whatever it is, entrepreneurs, whatever. Your first creative thing, whether it's a course that you're creating or a painting or whatever, is probably not going to be the greatest thing you've ever created. But you have to create that first one. <laughs> you have to. And maybe by the 10th one, it's going to be a lot better than your first one. And your 20th one is going to be better than your 10th one. And your 50th one is going to be better than your 20th one. That's another place where think quantity, not quality comes into play. You have to just keep cranking it out and cranking it out and cranking it out. And studies have shown that persistence and quantity are actually the key to creativity. If you just keep persisting, keep persisting, keep persisting in the generation of ideas as well, we tend to stop. Oh, you know, I've come up with three ideas. That's enough. Actually, it's probably idea number 48 that's going to be the best one. Or maybe it's idea number 125. But most of us stop before we ever even get there. Where do you find that balance, though, too? Because when we think about like iterating on drafts, and like I definitely agree, like, perfectionism can be crippling. Where's that balance then between also not accepting work that's not good enough that you would would say is not good enough? Where's that balance? How do you define that, I guess? Or how can somebody maybe look at that and say, yeah, this is ready. I just have to ship this or no, I really should go back and do another rewrite. Cause I think that's ultimately the challenge is it seems like it's, it's just a tough kind of bridge to cross there. What's, what's right. What's too long and what's too fast. Yeah, absolutely. That one has been so huge for me <laughs> as a dyed-in-the-wool perfectionist, recovering perfectionist. I now call myself a practicing imperfectionist because perfectionism does not make anybody happy. When you're trapped in this, it's not good enough. It's not, it's not good enough yet. I just got to keep working on it. I'm not going to release it yet. That doesn't get anybody anywhere. You do have to ship at some point. And Often shipping sooner and iterating is a better choice than continuing to tweak and tweak and tweak and tweak and tweak and never shipping. So where is that balance? Yeah, well, I don't have, I mean, I don't have a, a pat formula for that, but I know that I tend to now kind of veer on the side of shipping sooner and iterating as opposed to, you know, holding back and tweaking more if that makes sense, before shipping. 
Uh, I think for entrepreneurs and creatives, there's a, at least one, if not multiple articles on my blog and, and episodes of my podcast where I talk about the benefits of sharing your work before you feel ready. For creatives, I think this is especially hard because our creative work feels so, feels so vulnerable to share our creative work. It feels like we're just like ripping our, you know, chest cavity open and saying, here's my tender beating heart. What do you think of it? You know? And the fear is that we're going to show our work to the world and we're just going to be shredded. You know, people are going to say, who do you think you are? That's lame. (laughs) And my experience, I have a practice of sharing my work in progress, whether I think it's crappy or not, you know, (laughs) I just put it out there. When I started that practice sharing on Instagram, which feeds out to Facebook and Twitter and everything, it was so scary. I had the fear that that's what was going to happen. People were going to laugh at me or almost as bad, just get crickets. (laughs) And in fact, that has never happened. Sometimes I don't get that much response to what I share, but I have not once had somebody say nasty things about the stuff that I've shared that I've thought, oh my God, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. This is so awful. I'm going to paint over this. (laughs) You know, I'm just going to, I'm going to tear this thing up. I'm going to paint over it tomorrow, whatever. In fact, I've had the opposite experience. I've put things out, shared my photos of the things that, you know, the, the pieces I've been painting or drawing or whatever. And to my surprise, strangers have taken the time and expended the energy to lift their thumbs and tap the little like button or whatever. And it's not like I'm some famous person that they're currying favor with, right? It's not like they're trying to get something out of me by taking the time to like my little offer into the world. So clearly they must see some value in this thing that my gremlins are telling me is total crap. So I have two options when that happens. I can either completely disregard their feedback and say to myself, well, they're an idiot, right? That's one option. I could do that. Or I could say, wow, they see value in this thing that I think is total crap. Maybe there's value to be seen in this thing that I think is total crap. If I choose that second option, then that allows me to take off my gremlin glasses and put on their glasses and see my work through their neutral glasses. And that is profound because it allows me to have more compassion for my work and for myself as the imperfect creator of that work. And that experience of doing that on a regular basis, consistently almost every single day has shifted things for me so much. And that's why I recommend it to creatives share your work, share your work, share your work before you feel ready. And then the other thing that has been just astonishing to me is that more than once I've put out work in that way, just snapping a snapshot of it, sharing it and thinking to myself, oh my God, I'm going to paint over this tomorrow. This is so awful. And not only have people taken the time to lift their thumbs and tap the like button, but people have commented over on Facebook Gee, I really like that. How much is it? I want to buy it. Well, you know, knock me over with a feather. If somebody wants to buy 
that piece that I was going to paint over tomorrow, who am I to tell them that it's a piece of crap? If they like it enough to want to buy it, it must have value and I am happy to sell it to them. That's interesting. And I, I like that perspective on it. And it kind of, I think you, you alluded to this, but it was the next thing in the book that I want to touch on was this idea of like work and play. And I think you'd find it like later in the book. And I know you're doing some work on that right now, but this idea of like finding balance in your work through doing creative play, can you like walk us through that concept? Um, specifically like the idea of like why you should be, why you should really do more artwork. You should do more creative work. Um, and this balance between kind of like, I guess, work and play, where does that fit in to the day, so to speak, creativity versus like, no, I got to work on business related stuff. Like, how do we find that balance? Yeah. Well, one of the things that has been really profound for me is learning about how, how willpower functions in our brains, that the, the prefrontal cortex is the seat of willpower, of self-control. I learned this from a book by Kelly McGonigal called The Willpower Instinct. And Kelly McGonigal is a professor at Stanford University, and she teaches a class on willpower through their continuing studies program. And the class and the book are a compilation of studies in neuroscience having to do with, with willpower, super fascinating stuff. A lot of it very counterintuitive. And one of the things I learned from her class, which I don't think is actually in the book, but really interesting from the class is that willpower is a lot like a muscle. Well, she does, she does talk about this in the book. Willpower is a lot like a muscle in that it can be strengthened a lot like a muscle, and it can also be fatigued just like a muscle. And when your willpower metaphorical muscle is fatigued, you simply cannot remember your long-term goals. So like if you are sleep deprived, you're stressed out and you just feel like you're spinning your wheels all day long, you just can't get, <laughs> you have all these things you want to get done that day and you just can't seem to get them done. That's why your brain is just not running. You're just not running on all cylinders. Your willpower section of your prefrontal cortex is just offline and your lizard brain has taken over. The part of your brain that runs on impulse has taken over. So when that happens, there are things that you can do to restore energy to the part of your brain in the prefrontal cortex that is in charge of your willpower, of your self-control. And one of the things studies have shown that, that the best way to restore energy to your brain to power up your willpower is to do something that engages your interest. Ideally, something that puts you into a state of flow. Now, you, that could be hiking or mountain climbing or you know, rock climbing or mountain biking or solving math problems. Or guess what? That could be doing your creative thing. So, you know, your painting or your creative writing or you know, playing your musical instrument, any of those things is actually not a frivolous and self-indulgent waste of time. It's actually restoring your patience. It's restoring your ability to stay on focus and stay on task. And it's restoring your ability to resist and avoid the temptations and distractions that are going to pull you off focus and pull you away from the important things that you want to accomplish. So Doing your creative thing is actually going to help you accomplish 
your important work projects. So it's not a waste of time. We often think, oh, I don't have time to do that. I should be doing anything else but my creative hobby. In fact, doing your creative thing can be a really important way to help you get you know, more out of your work day. When I learned that, it was, it was, a, it was a game changer for me. Okay, so then, and obviously this depends, and there's a lot of variable here, but is that something that you would then recommend that be incorporated into the workday somehow? Or is it something like, no, work, 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 like save that for like the evening? What is like a reasonable suggestion, knowing that it's tied to willpower and tied to like your, your personal energy levels? I wonder if there's an optimal time for this. I'm a big believer in putting yourself under the scientist's microscope and the detective's magnifying glass. And you are the scientist and you are the detective. So like for me, I do a little bit of art making first thing in the morning, sitting in bed. I have a doodle practice, I call it, every day, pretty much. I mean, I'm not like, if I, if I miss a day, I don't like beat myself up, but that's what works for me. Your mileage may vary, but you know, maybe instead of, you know, people used to take cigarette breaks, right? <laughs> people don't like, that's not the cool thing to do anymore. Maybe you have like a doodle break, or maybe you have a play your ukulele for 15 minutes break, you know, figure out what works for you. I have another, another thing I call my golden formula, which is self-awareness plus self-compassion equals the key to everything good. And really what that means is pay attention and notice, that's the self-awareness piece, notice what's working for you, notice what's not working for you, just really pay attention. And then with that information, with that data, which you're collecting all the time, that's you know putting yourself under the magnifying glass and the microscope, with all of that data that you're constantly collecting, respond to that with self-compassion. Don't beat yourself up for it, but treat yourself kindly and lovingly and notice that you know it's not it's not a pathology if you respond differently than other people do just treat yourself really lovingly and how can you respond to whatever you've noticed in a way that is going to be the best and the most you know what is going to be the most loving response to that yeah so i, I like that I, and i again i think it's definitely takes like a, a significant amount of self awareness and then to be able to experiment and test this out and see what actually comes of it so try like actually incorporating that for five or 15 minutes a day during your day to see how that changes things. I think that would be kind of a fun, useful experiment for anybody listening. Yeah. And I'm a huge believer in small daily acts. One of my guideposts, number four, is think tiny and daily. And way back in 2011, I started a, an art, a daily art practice of 15 minutes a day. And I, I literally thought, yeah, 15 minutes. I mean, I hadn't been making art for myself for over a decade at that point. Uh, the only art I was making was for clients. I was a professional artist doing art on commission for clients, but I hadn't made any art for me except once a year when I would go on a retreat with my calligraphy guild and I was like dying. And I finally was like, all right, fine. I'll do 15 minutes a day for one month. I can't imagine that's really going to make a difference, but you know, Hey, it's better than nothing. It changed my life, changed my life. And, you know, some days I would go more than 15 minutes, but some days it really, all it was, was 15 minutes. And I discovered that, first of all, at least for me, now your mileage may vary, but 
you can act, I could actually get into a state of flow in 15 minutes. It was a total shock to me. And I couldn't believe how much I could actually accomplish in such a short amount of time. Plus, really, the challenge for most creatives is just getting started. And once you get over that hurdle, then you can keep going. And so if you set a little tiny, tiny goal, you know, commitment, like 15 minutes or even two minutes, you know, if you make your commitment goal ridiculously achievable, like that tiny little time goal, that will get you started much better than if you make, oh, I'm going to spend three hours a day. Oh, that's impossible. Forget it. That's like standing underneath a pole vaulting bar and thinking you're going to jump over it without a running start and without a pole. It's impossible. But if you make your commitment 15 minutes or two minutes or something just ridiculous, it's impossible to, you know, practically impossible to not do it. Then you're going to actually do it. And then you're going to feel successful, which will help you do it again tomorrow. So I'm a huge believer in tiny and daily. And when you, you know, you actually do it today, you're going to do it tomorrow. It's going to feel good. You're going to do it again the next day. And then those little successes build on each other. And then you look around a month later, it's like, wow, I've made 30 little teeny tiny pieces. Or I've done, you know, 30, 15 minute sessions. And look, I have a finished 30 inch by 30 inch painting or, you know, whatever it is you're working on. And it feels amazing. What would you say to people who struggle actually with the creative side of things? Because I consider myself probably naturally tending towards like, I do like creative projects. Like I liked doing creative things. That's not a hard thing for me. The hard thing for me is, you know, finding that, that balance. And, but I also am a business person, so I don't want to neglect my, my work for the creative part. So finding balance, that's the tough part. What about the people who don't consider themselves creative in that regard? Don't consider themselves necessarily artsy or into those kind of things. How does that person get started in this, this path? And what's a good way to integrate that into their kind of day-to-day life? Yeah. Everybody is creative. It's our nature as human beings. That creativity comes out in, you know, a whole spectrum of different ways. So my advice is always to follow your interests, follow your nose. Your particular flavor of creativity might have nothing to do with, you know, the traditional art forms, right? You might have zero interest in painting or music or you know, improvisation or, you know, all the things that make my toes tingle, right? So what makes your toes tingle? And just start following that. Here's the thing. Passions don't just suddenly spontaneously emerge for most people. They start off as a vague interest or maybe like a super duper interest that hasn't actually like an itch that hasn't been scratched yet. So whatever the metaphor is for you, you know, what makes your toes tingle or what's the itch that hasn't been scratched or what's the, what's calling to you or whatever, pay attention to that. Again, you're the scientist, you're the detective, and you're putting yourself under the microscope and the magnifying glass and start to pay attention to that. Is there something that you have been intrigued by that you've been interested in? Maybe for somebody, it, it all comes down to solving math problems. Maybe that is your creative outlet, whatever it is. I don't know. Maybe it's gardening. Maybe it's poetry, whatever it is, start to figure out how you might follow that path. What's the tiniest little step that you can take towards that? And if that step 
makes you interested to go a little bit further, follow that. And if that next step makes you interested to go a little bit further, follow that. That is how passions eventually really blossom and bloom. I love it. Well, Melissa, I know we're at the top of the hour for our conversation. Before we get going here, where can people reach out to find you? Maybe check out your book and check out some of the work that you're doing right now. And what's the best way for them to connect with you? Yeah, you can find the book at creativesandboxway.com. And you can find me at my website, melissadinwitty.com. If you don't know how to spell Dinwitty, you can also get there at livingacreativelife.com. It will redirect to exactly the same place. And you can find me on Instagram at a underscore creative underscore life. And over on Facebook, you can find me at living a creative life. I love it. Melissa, really appreciate having you on in the trenches. I recommend anybody who's listening, go check out the creative sandbox way. You can pick it up from Amazon. Great book. I would buy the physical print because I actually don't have the digital one, but I can't imagine it's it's quite the same. Maybe it's good. I'm, I, I would just think this has to be a, a paperback, right? Yeah. I didn't even create a digital one because there's really no point. It's, it's made to be written and drawn in. Good. So. Okay. That, I was, that makes me feel better. Good. So check it out. Go order the paperback if you get the chance. Melissa, thank you so much for being on In the Trenches. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delight. Thank you for listening to In the Trenches. Your creative work doesn't stop here. Join the resistance, the small but growing army of entrepreneurs and artists putting a dent in the world at www.tommorkis.com. Never fight alone. Join the resistance.